So if you had those days where you're trying to get things figured out and they don't just fit, maybe this morning was feeling a little bit like that. We find those things and it, and it just happens. You, find, you ever have those moments like that? Yes? No? Okay. <laughs> and so you, go to, you have those moments and you go, okay, God, would you please help me? I'm struggling with this, I'm wrestling with it, and you, and, you, and you walk these things out to God. Do you expect God to help you? Yes. Why do you think God would help you? He loves us. Any other reasons why you think he would help you? You're his child. Any other reasons why you think he would help you? I can't hear you. One at a time. Okay, he wants a message to go out. Any other reasons why you think he'd help you? Because he helps, because he brings you closer to him. Any other reasons? Huh? Because you ask him, okay? You know he'll help you because he tells you he will. We're going to look at that this morning. In fact, he says, if you ask, I will help you, right? So we ask because he tells us to ask. And we trust that he's going to help us. Amen. So this morning we're going to walk through that. But I want to take a few moments, and we'll have a word of prayer in a moment. But I just want to review a little bit what we talked about last week. And so as we start this conversation, James is writing, he's writing the first book of the New Testament. He doesn't, I'm not sure that James knows he's writing the first book of the New Testament. I think what James is doing is there are those that have been dispersed from Jerusalem and are spread out who've made decisions to follow Jesus. They're overwhelmingly Jewish. And so he's writing to them because they're facing hardship and they're facing difficulty. And so he's writing to them to help them to come alongside them. It just is that God is also working through him and we're finding that the first book of the New Testament is being written. And so he writes to them. They're facing a series of challenges. They're facing a series of issues. You can see some of that outlined on question two on the backside of our notes. But so that's for the discussion guide this coming week. But again, they have made decisions for Christ, but they don't have all of the rest of the New Testament as you and I have. So they don't have, they, they can't go, oh, I'm facing hardship, but I just know, I'm just going to rest here because I know, I know this is all temporary. I know Jesus is coming back. I know who wins at the end. We can go to Revelation. We can go to other places. We read those verses. We can read in Thessalonians and we, we come back to those passages. We find comfort. They don't have Revelation to turn to yet. They don't have Thessalonians to go to. And so they're wrestling and they're struggling. They have heard Jesus say, behold, and I'm coming back. And, and again, as you read through the New Testament, it becomes pretty clear that the anticipation that Jesus is going to be coming back really soon, he's coming back at any moment. And yet he's, he's not, he hasn't come back yet. Here we are now still 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't come back yet. We know he's coming. He wants us to live with the expectancy that he'll come back at any moment. They are living with that expectancy then. He's going to come back at any moment, but they don't know when, and they don't understand all of the big picture yet because it all hasn't been communicated yet. And so they're wrestling on this. And as I said in the notes too, they know that Jesus is the Messiah. But what they expected of the Messiah and what they expected the Messiah to do, Jesus was radically different as the Messiah than they were anticipating. 
See, when, the, when Jesus went in on the triumphal entry day and everyone there was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were shouting, Hosanna. They were looking for the Messiah to come and they were anticipating as Messiah would come, he would throw off the shackles of Rome. He would reestablish the kingdom of David. He would rise up, raise up Israel and, and, ha- and Israel would become supreme and dominant over the world. And, and that's what they were expecting. They didn't realize that that was something that would come at a later point in time, but they were looking for it right then and there. And so everything and so much of what they're anticipating as Jews of the Messiah was radically different. So a lot of the world has been shifted. A lot of their world has been turned upside down. And a lot of the things that they had learned, they are unlearning or relearning because God is doing something different than they anticipated. And now they've been pushed out of Jerusalem because the persecution has started with Stephen it went on to the, to the disciples in the church. So we see James, the brother of John, is executed. Peter is arrested. So now the, the, the apostles are being pushed also out of Jerusalem. But James, the brother of Jesus, is now the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing to all these individuals and helping them to think through and process what it means to walk with Jesus in the context of this new world they're living in in a relationship with Jesus and wrestling with the challenges that are in front of them. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into it for this morning. Father, I want to say thank you so very much for your goodness to us. And Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can lean on it, that we can trust it, that it is dependable. And Father, I thank you that you have given it to us to guide our steps and to help us to to live and to think and to function in ways that bring you glory and honor. And Father, we, we already touched on many of those things, but Father, I thank you also that you have given us the promise and the challenge to call on your name and to ask with the confidence that you have said that you will answer. So Father, be with us, I ask, and guide our time. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, I want to pick up this morning at James chapter 1, and I want to start in verse 5. And you can follow along on the screen you, if you have your Bible with you. If you have it on your phone, you can turn there. James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and unbegrudgingly. I'm smiling at that, because when I plug that in, it underlined the word because it didn't recognize the word unbegrudgingly. But God does not begrudge. He does not go, oh, you're asking again. You need help. Well, golly gee. You mean, really? You know, not begrudging. Okay? Unbegrudgingly. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now, as James is writing, he's telling them, guys, ask and seek wisdom. But he's also telling them something that they already knew. There's two areas, and I have two sets of verses here highlighted that I want to bring you to. The first is in in Proverbs, and the other is found in Matthew. But what is going to be said in Matthew, I am absolutely certain, has been communicated thoroughly already in the context of the church. But let's go to that first passage in James. And we'll see that in James, excuse me, in in, uh, in in Proverbs. Sorry about that if I was throwing you for a curve back there. So let's go to that passage in in, in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 2 verses 1 and 11. And I've shared this with you before because these are some of my favorite 
verses Proverbs 2 and 3 and 4 are just amazing uh, chapters of scripture as you wrestle through and think through them. But now, as Jewish readers, as, as individuals who have understood the, the Old Testament scriptures, they should be familiar with these words. And this is what Solomon was writing and Solomon was saying to his son, but I think ultimately he was saying also to all of us. He says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding, furthermore, and here's the key part, if you call out for insight, lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright. He is a shield for those who live with integrity, so that he may guard the paths of justice and protect the way of his faithful followers. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, and integrity, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will delight you. Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you. Now the readers, the people that James is writing to, they would have been familiar with these verses, and they would have understood these verses. And so as James is saying to them, ask for wisdom, cry out to God. Invariably, their their thought process would probably go back to this passage or other similar passages in the Old Testament where we are are told and where we are reminded to cry out to God, to ask and to seek him, and he will answer. And then this verse, this passage from the New Testament, and again, Matthew has not yet been written. Okay, so they didn't have Matthew to go to. But as those who were now disciples of Jesus and followers of Jesus and as those who probably many of them spent time in Jerusalem under the teaching of the disciples, they thoroughly have heard this and Jesus say, have this relayed about what Jesus had taught. And here we are in Matthew 7 verses 7 to 11. Jesus said what? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him. And so he's coming back and he's saying, guys, listen, you guys are wrestling through stuff. You have challenges. You have trials that you're dealing with. Ask. Go to the Father and ask for wisdom. Go to the Father and say, Lord, I need help. I'm dealing with this issue. I want to handle it properly. I want to manage it properly. Would you please help me? Go ask. And so then we find ourselves back in James. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. It's a promise. It is a wonderful, wonderful promise. Until you get to verse 6. Because verse 6 begins with a conditional word. You all know how this works, don't you? 
as soon as we hear the word but in a conversation, and, and we, all, we recognize that all of a sudden this conversation has somewhat become conditional. We all of a sudden realize that what came before may enact, in fact, in reality, may not happen because of what's about to be said. And here's what he says. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for a doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now we're here at the ocean. You've seen the wind on the water. You felt the wind. Friday, it was just blowing up a storm. So we were doing errands on Friday. We were driving around. We were with Eugene. So we were down Atlantic City. Then we were to Maze, not always to Maze Landing, but on the mainland. Then we were up to Bayville. And we were driving all over the place. Driving. We're asking for wisdom. That was not on me because I turned it off and still was going. All right. See, God gave it. Very good. So we were driving around and and the wind was blowing. And, And again, so we're driving over with a bay bridge and a parkway and all that kind of stuff, and the wind blows, and you're feeling the car shake. You look at the water, and it's all, all the water's kind of doing this. You know, you know it's not the calm. It's, it's all choppy, and it's all, you see it blowing. You, you, you get to the ocean, and you just, you, at times when the wind, wind is blowing, you just see it blowing the waves. You see the spray flying all over the place. We understand the impact of the wind. And we understand that when he says here, but, if you're not asking, trusting, you're not going to get it. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surgeon sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. What is going on? Have you ever asked God for wisdom? And he is indicated to you the path you should take. Maybe he's just spoken to your spirit. Maybe you've opened scriptures and and you've listened to what God has said and you said, okay, what's option B? I don't like option A. I want option B. I can tell you so many times I've, I've, I've experienced this. Listen, I need wisdom. I said, no, what you need to do is you need to apologize. I want wisdom. No, what you need to do is you need to confess your sin. I want wisdom. No, what you need to do is you need to go and have a conversation. I want wisdom. No, what you need to do is you need to change your behavior. I want wisdom. No, what you need to do is you need to change your attitude. Now, all of those are answers and all of those things are wisdom in the circumstances that that person is involved in. So as they are wrestling through those issues, those are the right solutions to, the, to address biblically in a righteous and holy way the challenges that are going on with them. But as they are being confronted with the things that they are, should be doing, they don't like the option. 
No, I don't want to apologize. No, I don't want to have a conversation. No, I don't want to confess my sin. No, I don't want to change my behavior. And so because they don't want to make a change or they want the change to be different because the change or the direction that that wisdom would suggest that they take is uncomfortable or awkward or more difficult than the path they want to take, they say, nope, I don't want that option. I want a different option. And God is saying, listen, You have a challenge, you have a problem, you have issues in your life that you're wrestling through, and you want wisdom, and you need wisdom, you ask it, and I will provide you the wisdom that you need to address the issues that you're dealing with. But if you come back to me and you say, nope, don't want it, don't like it, want something else, then don't expect to get another answer. Don't expect to get option C, D, and E. Because I've given you option A, and option A is the correct option. Answer A is the correct way to react and to respond to the things that are going on. And so if you're wanting something else, you're not going to get it. So don't expect a different answer. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because they are double-minded and unstable in their way. It's really simple. It's amazed me over the years how I have interacted with individuals asking for help. And we would come alongside and we would say, these are the things we think you should do. You'd walk through biblical principles, you'd walk through other things, and they, would, and they would just ignore it and want a different result. I have one, one event, I have a series of them, but one event in particular is in my mind. There was a couple that came to Joan and I, this is many years ago. They were wrestling with things in their marriage. And as they sat down with Joan and I, I sat down with the husband and Joan sat down with the wife. Here's the bottom line. The wife, all she really wanted was to complain. And she wanted to have someone like Joan to listen to her complain and berate her husband. And that's it. She didn't want to change her attitude. She didn't want to change her choices. She didn't want to change how she interacted. She just wanted someone with whom she could be angry, irritated, and, with, and to whom she could be negative and nasty to her husband, but who wouldn't say anything different. There was not a willingness and not a desire to change the patterns or do something different. Now let me ask you a question. How much do you think their circumstances changed? Not at all. None. None. Because there was not a desire really to have wisdom. There was really not a desire to have insight. There was no seeking truly of wisdom. But James tells us that as we are wrestling through issues, and now the church here is they're wrestling through issues because they're suffering persecution. They're suffering hardship. 
And as they're suffering persecution and as they're suffering hardship, again, they're experiencing things they really haven't experienced before. And they're experiencing these things that are unique to them because they're, they are, have become followers of Jesus and they're experiencing these things because they are followers of Jesus. And so they're asking for wisdom. They're asking for discernment. How do I react to, the, to my boss who is critical and nasty to me because I'm a follower of Jesus? How do I react to my family who's harsh with me and wants nothing to do with me because I've chosen to have a relationship with Jesus and so they have cut me out of their relationships because as Jewish individuals, they're not going to have anything to do with me because I am now worshiping and following Jesus. And they've written me off. All this stuff is going on, and they need wisdom. God will give it. Are you listening? That's the challenge. That's the challenge of what James is saying here. He's saying, you need wisdom? Ask. And God will ungrudgingly, willingly, gladly pour out the wisdom you need. And provide you the insight you need. But if you're asking for wisdom and then you opt not to use it and you want to seek something else, don't anticipate to continue to be on the receiving side of wisdom because you're making making the decision to reject God's wisdom and to seek something else. Now is that a joyous answer? Is that a happy answer? It's kind of a little give and take, isn't it? There's a part of that answer that fills you with joy. And there's a part of that answer that makes you excited because you know that when you cry out to God and want to have a conversation with God and you express to God the needs that you have in your life, you know that he's going to listen. But there's the other side of that coin, there's that accountability component. Because you're knowing that if you ask for that wisdom, but then you're blowing God off, you say, God, talk to the hand. I don't like that answer. Give me other options. God's response is, well, I've already given you what you need to do. When you do that, let's let's come back. We'll have a conversation. We don't like that because now that's accountability. He goes on. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast about his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now, as you read through this, some individuals and some commentators would come back and say, well, we're not sure who James is talking to. We know that the first part in this conversation, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. We know he's talking to humble Christians, but we're not sure if he's talking to to the rich Christian. I personally think he's talking to the poor and the rich in the church. Because that exists. Those who have less and those who have more, they exist in just about every church congregation. When I was wrestling through this, I, I... as I've told you in the past, I like to read. I like to look at some of the um, 
my study Bibles, and, and I appreciate the things that some of the study Bibles say. And in this particular conversation, I really appreciated what the ESV study Bible said, and I'd like to read you what it said, because I thought it was really insightful, so I put it up on the screen for you to see that. It says, The place of the rich and the poor before God. Both poverty and riches bring enormous pressure on a person to focus on the world rather than on Christ. Isn't that true? See, the person who has less, there's real pressure to focus on the world because they're fixated on what they don't have and they're fixated then on trying to scrounge together what they need to survive. And they struggle at times to do that. And so there can be a lot of pressure to focus on the things of the world because they have less and they are very aware of what they do not have in their struggle to make ends meet. And on the flip side, those who have a lot they have a tendency to live above the means, to live to some degree of indulgence, to live comfortably, to splurge, to treat themselves. So again, that that tension exists. It says, thus, James exhorts the poor to boast or glory in their high status in Christ. The lowly brother will be exalted or vindicated by God. In contrast, James exhorts the rich to boast in their humiliation. By realizing that their wealth is temporary and that it brings them no advantage before God. God is not looking at your, your, your wealth in your pocketbook. He's not looking at your checking account, your investments, and thinking, ooh, I need this one. It's amazing how God, you know, as the saying goes, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God has access to everything he needs. But he continues. In contrast, James exhorts the rich to boast in their humiliation. One, by realizing that their wealth is temporary and that it brings them no advantage before God. And two, by identifying with the poor in their affliction. The church is to be counter-culture, a countercultural community, which reverses the values of the world. Given the context, James seems to be saying that the challenges of poverty and wealth may be one of the greatest trials for Christians, as would be suggested by his immediate emphasis on the, on the blessed status of those who remain steadfast under trial. James also echoes... James also echoes Jesus' warning, you cannot serve God and money. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. I really loved what he said here. A simple context, a simple statement. So we come back to what he said. We We come back to the verses. Let's read them again. Let the brother in humble circumstances boast about his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beauty, its beautiful appearance perishes in the same way the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Man, there's trials on both sides of the coin. There are challenges on both sides of the coin. There are challenges and trials when we don't have enough, and there are challenges and trials when we have more. And sometimes the challenge when you have more is your challenge is to not care about those who have less and to escape and you can get away, you can try to avoid. But then you lose sight of where your calling is. You lose sight of the place where Jesus has placed you. 
you lose sight of the place where Jesus has called you to be engaged in other people's lives. And you lose sight of the fact that God might have given you some abundance, not so that you can lavish on yourself, but though you can help others who have need. On the flip side, those that are struggling, they're struggling. Both have their attitudinal issues. Both have the trials that, that work on them and twist them and, and, and try to force them into a secular, unrighteous way of thinking and in an in unrighteous way of behaving. Now again, for both sets, what do they need? They need God's wisdom to know how to manage the circumstances in a way that brings God glory and honor. They need the wisdom to know how to handle the situation so that they are walking well as a follower of Jesus. It's interesting to me that he goes into that conversation. But what's interesting also is that this is still an issue that exists today, isn't it? It still exists today. And one of the crazy things is we see that tension a little bit here in the States, but our world would look at this conversation and our world would look at this conversation and say, well, the poor Christian over here who has absolutely nothing in comparison to every Christian in the United States that they would look at and say is incredibly wealthy. And sometimes our perspective is really skewed. But still in that whole context, we need absolute wisdom on know how to move forward. And asking for that wisdom and then living in light of that wisdom. But here's a tension point. And he drills it down. We are living for something other than the here and now, aren't we? We should be focused on that. We should be looking at the reality that this is a temporary journey. That this is not the, the total summation of the journey and that everything rises and falls for our future based upon what we experience here. This is a temporary journey. Therefore, we should keep our eyes and our understanding on the temporariness of this journey. And I love the reminder. Listen, even, even the person that is incredibly wealthy, we can, we can look in our culture, we, we, we see... We see on TV, we see in other contexts, those that are crazy rich who don't have to worry about the next paycheck, who don't have to worry about the bills that are coming due, who live very indulgently. The day is coming when they're going to close their eyes and really the scope and timing of things is it's really quick. It strikes me sometimes technology is, uh, is an amazing thing. It's wonderful. Every day, we can turn on the TV and we can watch a movie or we can turn on the radio or go to the computer and, and listen to music. And we listen to, we watch people and we listen to people that are gone. I turned the TV on yesterday for something. I was looking for something and just happened to be on the channel and it was the, the Van Gooley show. And the show they were showing was The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay? And now, I didn't stay and watch it, but all the people that you're showing pictures of and you're, you're, the actors you're seeing pictures of, they're all gone. But the movie is still playing. We still have the technology. But those guys, they're gone. We have some great Christmas music we enjoy listening to. Karen Carpenter, some of Karen Carpenter's stuff is stuff that we really enjoy. She's been gone for years. Driving back and forth to Atlantic City to see Eugene. 
we pass this billboard, and it says, Michael Jackson, now, this is what really gets you, live, Michael Jackson. <laughs> okay? He's been going about, what, 20 years? 15 years at this point? He's been going a long time. And he, and he talks about the wealthy, and he talks about the rich, and the re- reminder of them is, listen, your time is short. You think you have all the time in the world. You think you, you own it. You think you've got it. You think you, have, you're, you're, you hold the world by the collar and that you just get to take this ride of life. And it's going to never end. But it's going to end. It's going to go be done way quicker than you think. It's not about how much you get to grab a hold of. It's not about how much you get to indulge. Fix your eyes, fix your attention on what comes next. And recognize that he has given us resources to use today that we get to, as we've talked a couple weeks ago, to invest in eternity. So ask different different questions. God, how do you want me to use the resources I've been given? Now, all of the one another's of Scripture haven't fully been written yet, but the one another principles are still in place. So how do the one another's get played out in their lives and how should they be applied how should those who have care about the one another's of those who have less and those who have less how should they interact with those that have now should they react to them as 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 beggars no they shouldn't be reacting that way either but in this whole process in the whole context he's saying that we should be seeking and we should be asking for wisdom And when we are asking for wisdom, we should have a sense of confidence that God is going to give us wisdom on how to manage and handle the life circumstances that are coming around us. And when we take that wisdom and we apply it, life works well. But when we say to God, no, I want option C, D, and E, because I don't like option A, we're dismissing and we're disregarding the wisdom God gives. And God says, don't expect more wisdom until you start to deal with what I've already communicated to you. He then goes on, and I like verse 12. And I agree with, the, the, with what the people in the study Bible said. I think it does relate to the things that were going before. It says, blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. One day, if you're in Jesus and you endure the journey, you're going to see the crown of life. Now, what's really cool is there's a number of crowns talked about. Again, not all this conversation has been going on, but I don't think, again, all of this is unknown to the readers. But let's just kind of hit a few of them. Let's look at Corinthians. Now, everyone who competes ex- exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive what? A perishable crown. But we what? But we an imperishable crown. And when, as we start to walk through Scripture, the passage in James being one of them, we are told that there are crowns that we will receive. Timothy, chapter 2 Timothy. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have, been lo- who have loved his appearing. So we're talking about the crown of life. We're talking about the crown of righteousness. First Peter. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive what? And the unfading crown of glory. Revelation 2.10, coming back to the context of suffering. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will... This is the, this is the Lord talking. It's not John talking at this point. This is the Lord talking through John. And he says that I will give you the crown of life, the crown being talked about in James. And then we go to chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And so we come back to James 1.12. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. God is going to provide crowns and he's going to give us crowns. And again, here's what's really cool. I think of what's really cool about this whole thing. God doesn't give us different crowns so that we can take them and put them on our head and then walk around and say, who's got the better crown? I've got more crowns than you've got, you know, that whole kind of thing. Or my crown is bigger than your crown or my crown's got more gems and jewels and all that kind of stuff. No, what's really cool about all of that? We get to lay that at the feet of Jesus and to celebrate the amazingness and the awesomeness of who God is and what he has done in our journey. But this is also part of that conversation about storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven where earth, where rust and moth do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. As opposed to being fixated on the here and the now. Focus on that which is coming. Focus on that which is eternal instead of that which is temporal. Because we will all face various trials. We will face trials. We will face trials here in the United States that others around our world will not face. They'll face different ones. And sometimes we will face things that are more difficult, but sometimes we will face things that are less difficult, but they're just different. We may not face the persecution of losing our life. We might face the persecution of harassment. We might face the persecution of losing assets. We might face the persecution of losing position. We will face different kinds of persecution. But through all of that, we should hold firm to our faith, hold firm onto Jesus. We should be learning to ask for wisdom. And we are promised that if we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us. And we have the opportunity then to apply that wisdom to the circumstances that are existing so that we can successfully navigate that path for Jesus' glory. But if we are asking for that wisdom and then blowing it off, that's when we land in trouble. And that's when the problems then start to compound. Because we're not choosing then to listen to wisdom. We're now choosing to start to listen to folly. What happens when you listen to folly? And again, you can go, to, you can go to back to Proverbs, and Proverbs talks about that. You start to listen to folly, and, and, and folly is compounded by more folly. Which is compounded by more folly which is compounded by more problems and more confusion. And all of a sudden, instead of getting back on track, you are further and further off track and further and further into the weeds of life instead of up on a safe and secure path where God is leading you and God is providing for you. So ask for wisdom. He promises to give it to you. But he also says, I'll give it to you with the expectation that you will use it, that you will apply it, that you will listen to reflect him well.
Making sense? All right. I want to shift. Because I really appreciate the challenge and the reminder in this conversation about fixing our eyes on that which is eternal. Again, we are short. So if you have not yet received a copy, or not a copy, uh, suffer communion, just wave to Vicki and Vicki will make sure you've received, you have one of these. But as we go, get ready to shift gears into talking about communion, I really appreciate the focus on looking at eternity. The challenge for us is to live with an eternal view, recognizing that one day Jesus is coming back. One day we're going to close our eyes and we're going to enter into eternity. But we don't have to do that with fear. We can do that with confidence. We can do that with peace. Why? Because we know the one who has saved our souls. We know the one who has paid the price for us and we put our faith and trust in him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have done that. And we are challenged. So in that upper room, as Jesus was getting ready to be arrested and then being ready to be crucified the next day, he had that conversation with the disciples and he says, and, and, he, and we see the elements of this communion being presented in the conversation. And he says, do this all in remembrance of me. And remembering is important. Because as we remember, we continue to remind ourselves so that we don't forget, so we stay on track. So, let's take that top part off. that wafer. In that upper room, Jesus, as he distributed the elements for Passover, took the bread and he handed it out to the disciples. And in that conversation, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And just remind you, as Jesus was about to be arrested, his body was battered. Jesus was healthy and whole as he stood before the disciples or as he sat before the disciples and distributed these things. But the next day when they saw him and as they watched him march to Calvary and as they saw him nailed to Calvary, he was not the healthy and whole man at that point in time that he was in the upper room. He was beaten with whips, with fists, a crown of thorns placed on his head and and pounded into his head, beard pulled from his face. Ultimately, a spear thrust into his side, nails driven through hands and feet. And as he says to them, this is my body, as he hands out that bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you, the reminder in the picture is to help us understand the, the devastating brutality of sin, the consequence of sin. There are times we look at sin and we think of sin as a, as a friend. We, we think of sin, as, as I heard someone kind of describe it once, as kind of pet sin, my... my this is my, when I have anxiety or stress, I just go to my pet sin area. And I find comfort. No, it's, it's, it's something that destroys us. 
It hollows us out. It destroys our lives. All of the problems you see in our world today are the result of sin. This is my body, which is broken for you to help us understand the devastating cost and burden that comes with sin, but also the cost to address the problem of sin. Let's partake together as we remember Jesus. The scriptures then say he took the cup and he blessed it. And he says, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And again, as we process through the, the scriptures and we, we listen to, the, to what the scriptures teach, it was clear, taught all the way through the Old Testament that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin because all through the Old Testament process, the foundation was laid for the understanding of sacrifice. And so all through the Old Testament, through the sacrificial system, you saw consistently all through that the life of a lamb or a goat or a bull was being taken, a turtle, the life was being taken and that blood was being used in the sacrificial system for the atonement and for the taking away of sin, for the Old Testament, for the covering of sin. But now the perfect sacrifice has come. But not something that would provide something that's temporary, not something that would provide a temporary covering, but something that would take sin away, the perfect sacrifice. We read in Hebrews, again, if we're thinking of the folks in James, it hasn't been written yet, but the principles are already being taught that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And again, the focus here is on, on ultimately on eternal things. And so he takes that cup, he gives it to disciples, he says, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And then as often as you partake of it, you declare my death until I come again. See, it was that final sacrifice that needed to be made now not to cover sin, not to provide that temporary covering, but ultimately to provide that sacrifice that would remove sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And we're being reminded of the price and the sacrifice that was made so that we could be forgiven. Let's partake together. Jesus did not do everything he did so that we could live life with a get-out-of-jail-free card but live crazy. He did everything he did so that we could have a restored relationship but he also did it so that we could experience a transformed life now. And that's, again, the challenge of why James is writing to the, church, to the church to the dispersed followers who are overwhelmingly Jewish. 
Because they want to walk well with Jesus. They want to reflect well their relationship with the Messiah. But they're struggling. Jesus is not just focused on giving us answers that deal with things for eternity. Jesus is interested in giving us answers that deal with things for life right now. And so when we partake of the elements of communion, we are also remembering the active work that Jesus wants to do in our lives today. Because he loves us like crazy, and he wants us to be able to experience his goodness, his richness, and his presence today. It's not all just about eternity. We need to live towards eternity, but in the midst of the journey, we get to walk with him and know him now. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect and as we remember, Father, I would ask that you would be at work in us. Father, as we prepare to shift gears and as we get ready to close in song, as we prepare to receive the offering, Father, for all of the things as they unfold, the the balance of this morning and then as we head off into the balance of our week, Lord, we would ask that you would be at work in us. Help us to walk with you well. But Father, help us to reflect you well. And Father, help us just to experience the richness and greatness of your presence. Lord, you are so good. Thank you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.